0: Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet.
1: Hello, everyone. I am back with the AMASIA Research Interview Series, and today I have Dr. Roland Geyer, who is Assistant Professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Prior to this, he researched at the Center for Environmental Strategy at the University of Surrey, the Center for the Management of Environmental Resources at INSEAD, he consulted in financial risk management in Germany, and he studied physics as an undergraduate, so quite the path, and we'll get to that in a second. Since 2000, he has worked with a wide range of governmental organizations, trade associations, and companies on environmental sustainability issues. In addition to being the author of numerous articles— He has also written a book whose very title gets us at Amasia all warm and fuzzy, which is The Business of Less, which challenges standard approaches to corporate sustainability. We'll get to that and other things in a minute, but I'm going to kick this off with our usual question. Roland, would you mind talking us through your life and career? You 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 started with physics, there was business in the middle, environmental science, and how did you end up here?
0: Very, very happy to do that. Thanks for having me. So, you know, as they say, not all... Who wonder are lost? So I like to think that of myself. So I did actually manage to get a graduate degree in physics. So I did a lot of physics. And and one of the reasons was that when I was at university, I was already passionate about environmental sustainability. I think that started sort of in the mid-80s when I read books like uh, The Limits to Growth, Silent Spring, smallest beautiful Way of Schumacher so they had they, all these books had a huge impact but you couldn't actually study anything there were no degrees in environmental sustainability uh, at that time so i picked physics because i also liked physics but i was already really into environmental sustainability and then towards the end of my studies i already looked towards a career i was trying to basically find a job in environmental sustainability in germany i was studying in berlin but basically did not find anything so they were very maybe it's a german thing but they were very focused on formal qualifications so occasionally i would get an interview you know maybe for an accounting firm that got their feet wet in environmental accounting and then they looked at my cv and said yeah but you're a physicist I Yes, I know that. But, you know, I think I can do environmental accounting if you give me a chance. But it it didn't work out. I ran out of money and I needed a job. So the only company that actually offered me a job was an American consultancy doing financial risk management in market risk and credit risk in Germany. Mm -hmm. It turns out they love physics. They actually have a name for it. They call us quants in the financial world. And so I did that for a year. It was very rewarding. I learned a lot, but it really only just reinforced my desire to actually do kind of my passion for a living. And then I started going to conferences, emailing, bothering everyone. I I read their papers and, and emailed them. And one person took pity, and that was Professor Robert Ayers. And he happened to be a professor at CMER at INSEAD. So he was a professor in environmental resources management at that business school INSEAD in France, south of Paris. And he uh, offered me a researcher position. And so I didn't think twice. I think just by agreeing to that, I, I must have halved my salary <laughs> from financial risk to to being a, a lowly researcher, but I, I never looked back, and that sort of that was the beginning of my career in environmental sustainability. And then I decided to do my um, PhD at a university in the UK, uh, University of Surrey, to study with professors Tim Jackson and Roland Clift at their Centre of Environmental Strategy, as it mm-hmm. was then called. Mm-hmm. And and finally, I had the qualification not paper. <laughs> I thought I was done with academia, but then this job found me here at the University uh, of California, Santa Barbara. It's this wonderful graduate school. It's called the Brent School of Environmental Science Management. And they had a job opening and I applied and they offered it to me. And I had a chat with my wife. We lived in London at the time with two cats and I said, like, well, should we just go for it? And, and we did. And that was 17 years ago, and I'm I'm still here. And I actually, I, I made it all the way to full professor now. So yeah, I been, a, As you said that, I was saying we got your title wrong, didn't we? That, no, not not to worry. But I'm I'm a legitimate academic now yeah, in environmental sustainability. <laughs> you made you your you made your mom happy, so that is one. <laughs> um, did you bring the cats? We did bring the cats. Yeah, actually, we, we got a very generous uh, relocation budget. <laughs> we flew the cats over. Not very environmentally friendly, but they had a great life, you know, like the golden years <laughs> in, in Southern California. They loved it.
1: Well, I'll get to our next question in a second. I do want to say, you know, the UC in Santa Barbara is widely viewed as being the best located, one of the best located universities in the world because you're in Santa Barbara. You know what's not to like. So that's wonderful. I'm not complaining. You may know, or you may not, we had Tim Jackson on our interview series last year. How wonderful. And he was very charismatic and, and colorful in ways that we liked. And one of the things he discussed was, quote, the battle between efficiency and scale. This battle features prominently in your own work. And so I think just to kick us off, maybe you could spend a few seconds for our audience on the f- what you call the fallacy of eco-efficiency, which you touch on in your book.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, of course, Tim is a wonderful academic and intellectual, and uh, I sort of I felt like I was writing my book, The Business of Less, as sort of a microeconomic, you know, sort of business-centered complement to his book – Prosperity without growth, which I thought was amazing in on sort of a macroeconomic level, but I felt like there was a lot to be worked out kind of on the on the microeconomic sort of market and even individual firm level. And that's kind of what motivated me to write the book. But the the drivers behind it I think were probably the same that that Tim had, which is that I just increasingly realized that you know, with our sole focus on what I call eco-efficiency, we are sort of, you know, missing the forest for the trees. And it's the same probably what Tim said is that, you know, total environmental impact is the product of impact per unit output times the total output that we produce. Right. Especially sort of in corporate sustainability after the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in the early 90s, the focus started to be almost exclusively on this idea of eco-efficiency. So, you know, we weren't talking about total output anymore. It was just the pure focus was we need, all we have to do is become more efficient, environmentally efficient and drive down environmental impact per unit output. And that would allow us to completely decouple economic growth, which was sort of a thing that you can't question, and environmental impact. And that would somehow allow us to keep growing while kind of bending down the curve of environmental impact to a, to be determined, you know, sustainable level. And we had eco-efficiency for 30 years, so there's lots of data to look at how we did over the last 30 years, and we, it basically failed miserably. It so failed. if you look at the data, it almost doesn't matter what material you look at, what industrial activity lo- you look at, growth in total output of products or materials or services has always outgrown our efficiency improvements. So, and I think that's you know what happens when you take your, your eyes off the ball and the ball was total environmental impact and not impact per product or impact per service. And that's kind of why I almost start the book with this sort of what you call the fallacy of eco-efficiency. Yeah, just to give, you know, like probably the most important example at this point is, of course, the carbon intensity of global GDP, right? So the IPCC just published another ever more desperate sounding report about how at this point we we really have to reach like net zero greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as we can. And the eco-efficiency enthusiasts, they would tell you the good news that between the Rio conference in 2019, the carbon intensity of global GDP has gone down, right? And it's gone down from around 560 to 420 Grams of CO two per U.S. dollar, so that's the good news. But at the same time, we more than doubled global GDP. Yeah, right. And so, and as a result, of course, the the greenhouse gas emissions went up from 22 to 36 gigatons, right? And that, of course, is is the exact opposite of what we're trying, what we need to achieve.
1: As you could imagine, we couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in general, a bunch of the per unit analyses ignore the fact that you have to multiply by something to get the total, right? Right. So there's a, bunch cap- there's a bunch of per capita analyses that, over long periods of time, but ignore the fact that population grew 10x. So we've got to yeah. do that. But I, I want to bring us back to another element of your book, which is that it lays out a new way of looking at environmental impact that you call neck green, and yep. it does a great job of using examples to explain how this differs from coefficients. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through one example? Because this is the kind of systems thinking that I think we yeah. more of in our audience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think this is the only way to really make measure and envision meaningful environmental change. So the one example, you know, let's just stick with greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, of course, electricity generation, biggest greenhouse gas emitters. So if you just look at, say, the carbon intensity of electricity generation, right? And so typical numbers would be a thousand grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour if you use coal-fired power plants, maybe half, 500 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour if you use natural gas. And then, you know, a typical number for solar PV would be 50 grams, right? A huge reduction, obviously. And there is no controversy really over those numbers. There's a range rather than just one single value, of course. But the, you know, orders of magnitudes are established. So, of course, then the recommendation that comes out of that is that, oh, we need to dramatically increase solar installed PV capacity globally. And, you know, luckily that is starting to happen, uh, which is wonderful. But again, you know, like everyone now celebrates the low carbon intensity of renewable electricity and the, you know, the increase in installed renewable capacity. But really what we should be thinking about is whether we are decreasing our use of fossil fuels, because that's really what this is all about. An eco-efficiency approach just doesn't tell you that. It just says PV solar is better than coal. So now we just need to massively invest in PV solar and in wind and maybe wave or other kinds of water and problem solved. But, you know, like the final step, and I think this is where it connects with your idea of behavioral change is key. The final step is that we need, the point is not, to increase renewable energy the point is to decrease fossil fuel use right and that is all about markets and behavioral change um you know micro and and macro economics. it's not a technological problem and so net green basically says we need to at least estimate what the total actual consequences of any sort of activity or investment or effort are so. What are the consequences of massively increasing solar capacity? You know, does it automatically follow that fossil fuels will be used less? Or could it actually just increase the total pie?
1: I hope that was useful. Those are, that is actually a phenomenal example, and yeah. these are the things that gnaw at us as well. And as, as you, yeah, we, we could spend. An hour, just you know, the IPCC has finally focused on demand side, right, right, which is related to the point that was just made, because you can only reduce fossil fuel use, as you said, through widespread behavior change, which involves thinking about lower demand. One of the challenges you delve into in the book is how to make it such that buying recycled products or buying no products is so attractive to individuals that they are willing to resist, and I'm I'm thinking, frankly, of my life more than anything else, that they're willing to resist the temptation to buy cheap and abundant goods that they don't need. And our entire society is designed in the United States to make it easy for us, right? The Amazon one click, for example. Yes. How do you think we get to this? How can we accomplish this, overcome this challenge? How far can businesses go on their own? And when do policy? Right. The operator opine. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, that is the billion dollar question for sure. And that was sort of really the, the motivation behind writing the book. Right. And I tried to sort of put at least an inkling of my idea just straight into the title, right, which is the business of less. So it's how do you sell less? Rather than selling more, how do you make that happen and and of course, you know the main thing is we need to somehow sell less environmental impact, but you know, and the eco efficiency fans would like you believe that this does not translate into selling less stuff right right so but I think there's just we have now enough evidence that that doesn't work, so selling less environmental impact almost what unavoidably means selling less stuff and and that is the real challenge and that's i don't want to pretend that i have a a simple answer in the book i'm i think i'm trying to kind of work towards the solution and i'm also not the person that is going to claim that businesses and industry can do it on their own because they can't i think so you know just Like to be completely upfront, I think without very robust policy support, it's not going to work. And without getting the households, the consumer on board, Mm -hmm. it's also not going to work. But I still think companies, the corporate world should not take that as an excuse for inaction and basically just point the fingers, you know, like, oh, it's, you know, it's down to the consumer. Oh, you know, like we need policy. Yes, we do, and yes, it is, but I think businesses can play a real, real need to play a major role, and sort of one of the ways what I think is missing at the moment i mean there's no shortage of corporate sustainability <laughs> activity or you know maybe even activism in a you know so sort of questionable way, you know, like pledges of carbon neutrality are popping up left, right, and center how they are going to be achieved is sort of currently beyond me. But I think one thing that needs to happen is that businesses are prepared to fundamentally question their and rethink their business models. I, so I don't think it's going, the, the willingness to change is going deep enough. And, you know, what I mean by that is, and I have, you know, like one example in the book is car sharing. hmm and you know the question first, the question is car sharing actually green right net green, and if it is, what makes it net green and there was a a very a wonderful large survey done by u c Berkeley about five ten years ago um where they surveyed the behavior of car sharing users, mm-hmm. and what turns out is that what really makes car sharing net green is that it makes a critically important fraction of the customers drive substantially less. So basically what car sharing does is it sells less driving. Right, if that makes sense. So it it's sort of it facilitates, it provides all your mobility and accessibility needs with less driving and that's what makes it net green. This idea of well we are no longer selling cars and some car companies are claiming that, uh, that you know, we're not, no longer in the business of selling cars. We're going to, we are now access providers or so mobility providers. And if they were serious about that, I think it could actually open the door to really meaningful greening because at that point they wouldn't have to just sell as many cars as possible. They could actually try and sell less driving and still get everything done. Another example for some reason, I increasingly get involved in the apparel space. It's sort of it's another meander <laughs> in my, and I'm I'm really excited about it because one thing I learned is that the environmental impacts of the apparel industry, global apparel industry, are massive. They're actually the third largest plastic users after packaging and construction, which is kind of wild. It's all synthetic apparel. It's basically you know we're wearing. PET. If we wear polyester, it's the same polymer. And I feel that some companies in the apparel space are getting serious about repair models, you know, sort of renewal or reuse models. And that, you know, again, I think it would be a business model where you're not, that is not based on trying to sell as many clothes as possible, but selling longevity for example, of clothes or repairability of clothes. And that way the company could still make revenue and provide employment and and meaning to its employees, but it wouldn't have it wouldn't be tied to having
1: to sell garments. Those are great examples. And you know the clothing stuff really dwells on my mind. Uh, you know we were decisions, yeah, I was just telling one of my colleagues that you know I've kind of made a personal commitment not to buy a new garment again. See, for that to happen, repair needs to be working. Absolutely. And it's
0: much harder than it should be, right? It is much harder than if it you're should. if you are trying to repair a garment, you would think there are sort of options everywhere, but it's it's actually really, really difficult. You know, there's one maybe one shout out here that, that I can do is there is a wonderful outfit. I think it's up in Oregon, Portland, maybe. It's called the Renewal Workshop. And it's, you know, it's some people out of the apparel industry also basically said that this is not working. We need to completely rethink apparel. And they started this company that is exclusively focused on repairing and refurbishing garments, used garments or your own garment, which I think is wonderful.
1: We're going to track them down just for our own stuff. <laughs> um, I want to keep going, although each of the, each of your responses like spawns fifteen new questions. But I want to keep us tight. So one of the propositions for reducing the total environmental impact of products is holding constant or even raising their prices and directing those revenues towards labor, rather That's than things right. or investment of corporate. That's right. And you know, in American capitalist circles, you know, you say the word labor and everyone's hair begins to stand on end. <laughs> I think it would be helpful to hear from you. Why is labor so powerful with regards to environmental impact?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just maybe an, an advance warning: this is WIP. This is work in progress. Okay. And I'm excited to actually really work through this, you know, very thoroughly academically. But I think there is tremendous potential there, and I got quite excited, so excited that I put it in the book, even though you know, like as some of my students say, I was surprised you put it in the book because usually you think everything through right to the end and then you put it on paper. That's not quite there, but I think there's enormous, yeah, it actually came, it's an idea that I had in the middle of teaching a class on pollution prevention. Okay, And the idea was we looked at the environmental impact of households, like the greenhouse gas impact of households and how which activities have the largest carbon footprints, turns out to be things, unsurprisingly, you know, heating, travel, and so on. And then the question of, well, what should a household do? And I just ad-libbed at some point and said, you know what, a household should just redirect as much of discretionary income into labor. And by labor, I just mean people's time and skill. So in that respect i'm a laborer i'm a knowledge laborer right Mm -hmm. because that is people's time and skill is truly the only thing it's the only production input that has zero environmental impact so every dollar i redirect from buying some stuff you know physical things and i redirect it as a household to just paying for people's time and skill is net green by definition well, I, i'm I'm reducing the household's environmental footprint and and the funny thing is then suddenly some of the greenest things you can do you would never find in lists of green products yeah. for example, getting a haircut is like you know I decided this one of which I urgently need I actually have one right after this forecall. call, but I decided that you know things like Paying someone to cut my hair is actually a way to reduce my environmental footprint.
1: And we're going to move on from this question, but I want to just say how much I love and believe in that idea. Because then I I want to make an extended point, which is one of our beliefs, and perhaps it's yours, is it's really the affluent who need to do the most. For a variety of reasons. You know, they're responsible Absolutely. for the emission but they're also role models for other people's behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like instead of having a house two times the size that you need, you could turn that excess capital into funds that are directed to labor of various kinds that serves multiple purposes in your life. Yes, You know, yes. what's that, the barber or... Pick an extreme example, uh, because it has to do with affluence. You know, another assistant or another person in your company, etc. Oh, music lessons,
0: yeah. yoga lessons, a massage. I mean, it's you know, like the, it's, it's love it. Of the the options are are limitless, absolutely. And so, you know, kind of my end goal is that you know, we as a society sort of just collectively decide to just spend money on each other. Our skill sets and, you know, of course we still need food. We still need shelter. We still need clothes. But, you know, we already talked about how we overconsume all of those things, right? Yes. We over, I mean, we even overconsume food, which is crazy, right? I think the estimate is always that 30 to 40% of the food that gets grown ever, never gets eaten. This is just crazy. And you said, you know, houses are bigger than they need to be cars obviously are bigger than they need to be. We have too many clothes, so there's so much money that we could just take from that and just spend on each other. And that might that might be the greenest thing we could do, ironically. And the wonderful thing is all the social
1: sustainability benefits that we could also create. We should come back and talk again about this because it's a deeply interesting topic. And specifically, I want to come back and talk about how the affluent can reconstruct their lives and not feel like they're living in a ditch, but still do better things than buying a large vacation home. I'm going to take us to our last question. There is clearly a lot in corporate sustainability and, as or as we think of it, virtue signaling that is not working. But there are also many encouraging things that are happening. You know, the rise of so-called v Corps, the leadership of green parties both in the U.S. and in Europe, and maybe. One day in Asia, you sure? the overall changing tide of discourse, where do you find hope and optimism as we work towards the realization of the business of less? And feel free to share with us examples of successes. And I loved the one you did, of right. renovation workshop. That was amazing. Yeah. We will get to it. But what <laughs> makes you optimistic? It. I mean... I live in two minds, I
0: mean, I'm just decided to be an optimist, you know, because what what else is there to do? You know, so I just believe that i I do really fundamentally think that there is a way of life where you know we could live sustainably and live the good life but also leave room for all other species on this planet i I truly believe that we're I still feel that if anything, we're moving away from it, not towards it. And it is, you know, if you look the uh, read the IPCC report, it is, you know, like is it, is it five to twelve? Is it five past twelve? You know, like time's running out. But you know, my my wife, who's a very wise woman, she in times so that I get impatient, she she has this one saying that she likes to tell me, which is people overestimate what they can achieve in one year and underestimate what they can achieve in ten. Yeah. And when I look back sort of on my life, this is well, that's the story of my life that I sort of look back and say like we are not moving, this is not you know, like nothing's changing. But when I do look back to, you know, me as the physics student in the mid nineties trying to wanting a career in environmental sustainability and basically there not being one, things have changed. Things have changed. Dramatically. I mean the thinks the views that I had back then would have been fringe views. They're like thoroughly, firmly mainstream now. It really is encouraging, you know. So so society as a whole is changing and I think is moving in the right direction. It's just not fast enough for some of those urgent environmental issues. So, you know, for me, encouragement, I mean, it's my children are sort of the main driver and motivator how, how um, long are your kids they are almost 15 and 18 okay and they have sometimes i mean they're teenagers they you know they talk like teenagers behave like teenagers that drive me nuts i love them to bits but when we do not talk about tiktok or video games then they just stun me with their environmental literacy yes that that they have already acquired. And, and that is astonishing. And that
1: gives me hope. I want to make one editorial comment because I also have teenage children. I'm very surprised by how little they are attached to things. The Indeed. way, the way and stuff, the way, yeah, which was very different from me at their age. At their age, I mean, you, you sound like an evolved human being. I was not. I wanted stuff. I wanted things. <laughs> and my kids don't. They just don't. And it's not just them, it's not because we have some special parenting going on. It's true for much of the parent. I, I think you're right, it's a
0: societal trend that I yeah, I also read about that where, you know, like ownership of things like cars or, you know, even houses is just not a priority it's for no. millennials or like uh whatever they are called that come afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, so there truly is hope. And so, you know, another encouragement for me is is the amazing students we have here at the Brent School. You know, we have a two-year master's program, and they choose this program very carefully. And they're all in their 20s, early to late 20s, and they're all just completely value-driven individuals that sort of want to make a change. And that, that absolutely gives me
1: hope. We are going to wrap things up here. I want to just express a tremendous amount of gratitude for your time. I'm afraid you're kind of stuck with us because we will be back to talk about other things. And sounds lovely. We may get to Santa Barbara. You may get to the Bay Area. If you do so, please come say hello. I'm going to end us here. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. That was a great conversation. Thank you for listening.
0: Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas. And visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.